Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. We're recording this episode on Halloween, by the way, and it's going to drop after Halloween. And uh, just minutes before recording, uh, somebody sent me some of the spookiest news I've seen, which is that uh, my favorite character in film history, Jason from the Friday the 13th movies, Jason, uh, he's back, folks. That's right. Tinseltown's original bad boy, Jason, is back on the scene. <laughs> I like I like how even though you're saying this in your ironic voice, like your lack of enthusiasm uh, shines through. Well, you know, the thing is, I genuinely do love the Friday the 13th movies. I've seen them all. There's a consistency to them. There's a ritualized quality to them that I really respect. And I especially like the second half of the series where like the first four or five, the first four really kind of set the template. And then after that, the series, as it struggles to keep the audience's attention, keeps introducing fun new gimmicks like uh, Jason Takes Manhattan. Uh, There's the one where he goes to space. There's the one where he fights the telekinetic girl. There's the one... Oh, Jason Jason versus Megalon. Yeah, yeah, uh, all all of them. But Jason is facing his greatest challenge yet, which is Prestige TV. There's a headline here from Variety. Friday the 13th prequel series Crystal Lake from Brian Fuller ordered at Peacock. Brian Fuller is responsible for such shows as American Gods, Dead Like Me, Pushing Daisies, and Star Trek Discovery. And uh, there's going to be a Friday the 13th prequel series, presumably about grief and trauma, uh, I I have to assume. It's like, will the forces of cultural gentrification stop at nothing? Will they come for everything? I mean, Friday the 13th, I thought that this was one franchise that we could rely on to just consistently deliver, you know, teenage teenagers having sex and getting killed. I like that the adjectives you've used to describe it or to to praise it, I should say, are I think you said that it was uh, it's consistent and it's ritualized, which, you know, two two alternative words to use there might be repetitive and formulaic. But you seem to be say, <laughs> saying these as uh, notes of praise. Yeah, it's like the Stations of the Cross, you know, like Friday the 13th movies are what has replaced Catholic mass for me in my life ever since I've lost religion. <laughs> it just makes me sad that the purity of the franchise, this franchise that I love so much is going to be corrupted with, you know, probably trendy (laughs) themes and probably pitched for sort of like a 30-something yuppie audience rather than, you know, horny, dumb teenagers, which is what it's for, what it's supposed to be for, you know? Yeah, why can't they keep it on pure ground like Freddy going into space and shit like that? Exactly. So uh, (laughs) what's on your mind, Luke? I mean, I think think you'll be hard-pressed to find a more pressing issue facing us than that. Well, I I don't even know how to transition into this after that very weighty discussion, but I do think we should acknowledge the momentous political event that happened in Brazil yesterday. If you're a Patreon listener, uh, you can hear my conversation, my interview with uh, Vincent Bevins, the journalist who's been in Brazil during the runoff, but it was recorded a few days before the election, and I had a pretty interesting conversation with Vincent, who um, some of you will know him uh, for his reporting on Latin America, but I suspect more of you will know him for his book, his 2020 book, The Jakarta Method. Anyway, he and I had a really interesting conversation about the political coalition that Bolsonaro has assembled, you know, what has actually been involved in this extreme right formation of Bolsonaroism, what are its prospects uh, beyond the defeat in the election yesterday, or what ultimately became electoral defeat yesterday, what are the similarities with Trumpism, and what are the differences as well? I mean, that was a part of the conversation I found particularly interesting because obviously in you know American media, so often the concern um, or preoccupation when talking about any other country, even if it's you know culturally very different, if it's not English speaking, et cetera, is how is such and such a thing like Donald Trump or just more broadly, how is such and such a thing like something going on in the United States? And we had an interesting discussion around that because of course, Brazil is a large and complicated country with its own uh, complicated internal politics. It's not just a giant Portuguese-speaking version of the United States. Uh, but at the same time, and you know, I learned something here. Uh, I, d- I wasn't really aware of the extent of this, but you know, according to Vincent, there's a lot of Americanization in Brazil, and uh, like the far right has done elsewhere. I've seen this with Viktor Orban and Hungary and a, n- a number of other figures as well. You know, Bolsonaro made quite active attempts. And, you know, he, he and his various fail sons have made active attempts to kind of. Su- 
seduce the right in the United States, the Trumpian right, and to kind of just copy things that they do, borrow things from the United States. So there's a very complicated interplay there, and there are some genuine parallels. Although, as Vincent argued to me, Bolsonaroism is probably a more kind of coherent formation than Trumpism, at least in an ideological sense. And politically, it may have more longevity. Anyway, lots more in that conversation, which you can find at patreon.com slash Michael and us. Not going to say anything more about this, except it's awfully refreshing to be able to celebrate a good political outcome for a change. And I really wish my friend Michael Brooks was here to see it. Now, as ever, we do have a movie to discuss on this episode, but I think we'd be remiss not to talk about another big story that's been percolating. And this, of course, is Elon Musk's recent purchase of Twitter. Last night, I don't know if you saw this, Will, uh, the news broke that one of Musk's early initiatives is that he wants to uh, make it so you have to pay if you want one of those check marks. Yeah, I saw like, what is it, $20 a month or something like that. <laughs> are, are you going to pay? Are you going to pay to keep your check mark? No, I, I'm, I'm absolutely not going to pay. I think it's ridiculous. I mean, from what I understand, there's been a sort of faux democratic argument made for it. Like, this is actually about making Twitter less hierarchical. But I mean, you're obviously not doing that if it's pay for play. Like, if the idea is just this is a service where you can have verification so that, uh, you know, whether you're a public figure or a non-public figure, a journalist or somebody who's not in uh, the public eye at all, this stops people from impersonating you. I mean, if, if they were just doing it like that, you know, that would be fine. But the fact that there's this kind of pay to play thing that's being introduced to me just means that if anything, it'll just kind of solidify any kind of hierarchies that are already sort of implicit on Twitter, because it just means that, you know, certain organizations and such will pay for these things. I mean, it also means like whatever identity people have built around these blue check marks, like, <laughs> like, like, like it's the equivalent of Frank D'Angelo buying his talk show time slot <laughs> on like cable access TV. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like if in two months, from now if somebody has one of these blue check marks you're going to know that they were so determined to keep it that they paid $20 a month for it and I feel like that's not going to be a great look for people it's going to be pretty cringe I feel like it speaks to a bad business sense in Elon Musk that you know he buys this website where thousands of the most famous people in the world and all of the most famous writers in the world are writing content for you for free and it's that content that has created the multi-billion dollar valuation that you forked over like you're kind of nickel and diming them to then be trying to get another 20 bucks out of them right well i think that's exactly right and i mean i think that there's good reason to believe that this is going to be just a kind of a non-stop chaotic disaster i mean i think earlier today i haven't read a story on it i just saw the headline but musk i guess fired uh, the twitter board and he's just going to be the sole member so it's got a, a unitary theory of the uh, executive in a call forward to our movie today. I'm kind of thinking of the last scene of Aguirre, The Wrath of God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's how this is going to end, is just him, like, on his way, as he sees it, to El Dorado, as every one of his comrades on the raft is just either dead or dying, and I don't know, monkeys are gnawing away at the wood or, or whatever. But, I mean, we know how these guys think. We know that for Silicon Valley and tech guys, like, innovation is usually, usually that's just code for, uh, we're going to commodify things further. And I expect, you know, if I was to speculate on where Musk will try to take things, it'll be with that principle in mind. I mean, I think Twitter has consistently lost money. I think it lost less money last year than it has in previous years, but it's still lost hundreds of millions of dollars. From what I can tell, Musk uh, intends to turn that around quickly, or he, he, you know, that's going to be his priority to, to try to generate revenue quickly. And I think uh, because of the way he thinks, or is likely to think, that's going to be through monetization, not just in the form of commodifying the check mark, but in other ways as well. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we get some kind of uh, unworkable concept introduced about how, uh, well, you know, there's going to be monetization, but, you know, you're going to get to be a social media entrepreneur too. You can make money off of this, just like YouTube. Everybody will be able to become their own little poster qua entrepreneur. And I don't think any of that stuff will work. I mean, I think that the thing that makes the platform work insofar as it does work at all is the small d democratic nature of it. The fact that anybody can just get an account for free and then post their thoughts and then 
if the thoughts are, I don't know, compelling or viral enough for others, they can build a following and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the other part of it that just doesn't make sense to me, this is still monetization I'm talking about, is, I mean, as a Twitter user, you know, you're not a customer, like you're, you're a product. Like the whole model is built around generating revenue from advertising. I think about 90% of Twitter's revenue currently comes from advertising. And so I think anything that makes it a less quote unquote democratic medium is going to undercut that aspect of it as well. I really can't see it working. So are you going to make the jump to Parler? Well, that's the other thing that's funny about this is I think regardless of like the extent to which this is a world historic disaster, I think we're all just kind of stuck with Twitter (laughs) because there have been these various attempts, like obviously most prominently the right wing attempts, you know, what is it like truth social? (laughs) Uh, That's that's a platform where, you know, I think Kanye West is on there and I think he has about 5000 followers, which gives you a sense of what a small platform it is. Did Kanye not just buy Parler? It's been a little bit overshadowed by certain other things that Kanye West has done lately, but I believe he actually bought Parler. Yeah, I think that's true. He has a relationship with Candace Owens or something, and that has something to do with it. But as far as I know, none of these rival uh, attempts to start social media platforms, you know, regardless of whether they're, you know, right wing or anything else, you know, it's very, very hard to start a rival to a platform like uh, Facebook or Twitter because they're premised very specifically on the fact that everyone is already there. Do you remember, Will, uh, some years ago there was an attempt to start a Facebook rival that was invite only that I think was called Ello that had about a week in the sun yeah, I do remember that. Wow. That had about a week in the sun and then it went, uh, as far as I know, it went absolutely nowhere. So I think regardless of what Elon Musk uh, does or doesn't do with Twitter, uh, it's a hellscape that we're all uh, just going to be trapped in for the foreseeable future. Yep, I'm happy to be one of the monkeys on the raft. Well, we've talked about some serious issues so far. The gentrification of the Friday the 13th franchise, the Brazilian (laughs) election, Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. But let's talk about the most important issue of all, which is uh, the, the dang state that America is in. That's right. We're going to be talking about Adam McKay's 2018 Dick Cheney biopic slash anti Dick Cheney polemic Vice. So what's the plan? The plan is to take over the damn place. Vice has more Golden Globe nominations than any movie this year. Hot damn. Including Best Picture of the Year. Bush approved all of this? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> you rascal. Jeez, Dick, you are terrifying. Vice, rated R, everywhere Christmas Day. Now, I had never seen this movie before, Will. We've gotten a lot of requests to do it on the show. Uh, Was this your first viewing of it as well? It was indeed. I want to preface what we're going to say about the film by just repeating something that we've said on the show, uh, I think, a few times before. And it's far from a novel observation, but I feel compelled to uh, state this outright regardless. And that's that I think there are few political rehabilitations that have happened in the Trump era, or indeed in my lifetime at all, that are as grotesque as what liberals have done with Dick Cheney since 2016. I mean, this is a guy who began his political career working in the Nixon White House and was committed for quite some time to the idea that Richard Nixon had been treated unfairly. Uh, this was a guy who, when he was in Congress, uh, voted against sanctioning apartheid South Africa, was against uh, freedom for Nelson Mandela. He was on the committee that was investigating the Iran-Contra affair, where incidentally he actually pioneered some of the theories we see in this movie about the basic unlimited power of a U.S. president to make war and do whatever they want without congressional authorization. Uh, There was a minority report, a sort of minority opinion issued around that investigation, which Cheney helped author. And though it did make criticism of the executive branch, this is in the Reagan administration, obviously, uh, it did so on the grounds that the executive branch had erred by cooperating with the committee that was investigating CIA support for the Contras. Now, I'm not going to run through every single Dick Cheney depredation here because we'd be here uh, all day. But I mean, for God's sake, uh, the man became vice president after doing the successful version of January 6th. I mean, people seem to have memory hold the 2000 election, an election in the popular vote, Al Gore won by half a million votes. But regardless of that, Gore definitely won Florida as well. And a small scale version of what happened on January 6th occurred in what's colloquially known as the Brooks Brothers riot, uh, in which Roger Stone and, and very 
various other people had some involvement. You know, there's that clip after the 2020 election of Donald Trump saying, you know, just find me a few more thousand votes or whatever. You know, and that's basically what Bush Cheney 2000 did with the 2000 election. I mean, on election night in 2020 and in the few weeks after, there were all the right wing uh, attempts to discredit, and I suppose in the lead up as well, to discredit mail-in ballots and things like that. And to suggest that somehow, you know, the mail-in ballots, which are counted later, actually amounted to just like the addition of fake votes. uh, And that's what put Joe Biden over the top. Well, what happened in Florida in 2000 and what Bush Cheney did in 2000 was basically just the smaller scale version of that. Just stop the count so that the few hundred votes needed to tip the state and thus the Electoral College and thus the election for Al Gore to just make sure that those votes were never tallied and the election was handed to Bush and Cheney. The fact that on the anniversary of January 6th, Dick Cheney was invited back to Congress and celebrated by many liberals as a friend of democracy. I mean, it's emblematic of many things. It's just plainly grotesque for one thing, but among other things, it's just further evidence that no event or action, no matter how heinous by a powerful person in the United States is ever going to be remembered after a few years have transpired. It took basically 10 years or maybe slightly more after he left the White House as vice president for liberals to rehabilitate Dick Cheney. And I suspect that's one of the reasons why Adam McKay's film Vice, one of, I guess, two films to offer a treatment of uh, the Bush presidency, at least of this kind, I suspect uh, that's one of the main reasons that it was so badly reviewed. Um, I think probably it's worth saying that off the top as well before we talk about the movie is that it was not very well received. Uh, at all when it came out in 2018. Uh, I think another of the main reasons why it wasn't well-received is because it's a piece of shit. I (laughs) hated this movie. So I I guess we probably disagree. Yeah, that's not how I feel uh, at all. I mean, not since various conversations about like cinema Weimar Germany have we ever kind of vociferously (laughs) disagreed about... uh, I don't think we vociferously... Hang on, hang on. We didn't vociferously disagree about Weimar Germany. I think think we were in agreement on that. Although, my God, any reservations I showed about Metropolis, I mean, I, I take them back after watching this. So listen, why don't we get into this movie? I think the opening montage of this movie kind of gets at everything that I think is right and wrong with this movie. There's a narrator played by Jesse Plemons, who we find out why he's involved in the movie sort of later on, but he narrates much of the film. And in the opening narration, he says, and I'm just going to read the narration, as the world becomes more and more confusing, we tend to focus on the things right in front of us while ignoring the massive forces that actually change and shape our lives. And with people working longer and longer hours for less and less, when we do have free time, the last thing we want is complicated analysis of our government, lobbying, international trade agreements, and tax bills. Now, this plays over images of people working at Amazon warehouses, Walmarts, and then when he talks about we don't want complicated analysis, McKay shows us footage of like people dancing in a mosh pit. And then the narration goes on to say, so it's no surprise that when a monotone bureaucratic vice president came to power, we hardly noticed as he achieved a position of authority that very few leaders in the history of America ever have, forever changing history for most our lives. And he did it like a ghost. And that plays over footage of the Iraq War, Guantanamo Bay, bad bills being passed, etc. And like I say, this gets at what's both, I think, right and wrong about this movie. The movie's thinking systemically. It's thinking about the big picture issues. But this movie also thinks that its audience is stupid. I don't think most people are ignorant that these massive forces exist. If you tell people that politicians pass bills that economically favor their donors and allies, most people would say, yes, of course. And certainly, Dick Cheney didn't do any of this stuff in the dark. I mean, we see footage of the Iraq War. We see footage of Guantanamo Bay. People know these things happened. One coping strategy that people have adopted, though, in the face of all this, is to assume that you've got two teams, Democrat and Republican, and that one side, pick your side, is to blame for these bad forces, and the other side is ultimately fighting for good. And I think to the degree that liberals have rehabilitated Dick Cheney, a lot of that has been a coping mechanism. 
And there are a lot of coping mechanisms. You know, you can volunteer for Bernie Sanders. You can join the Ron Paul revolution. (laughs) And I think the sense of hopelessness is actually something that Adam McKay's next movie, Don't Look Up, really got right. Um, It got this broad, bipartisan, almost overwhelming sense of despair. But this movie really falls into a problem that so much liberal kitsch falls into, which is people need to hear the facts. And once they hear the facts, they'll understand. So this movie is packed with facts. This movie is appallingly didactic. And it believes that the importance of what it's saying overrides any concern about the style and the artfulness with which it says it. And, you know, some of the shocking revelations are that, like, trickle-down economics don't actually result in money trickling down. Or or would you believe that the conservative Supreme Court handed George W. Bush the election? I mean, these are not truth bombs. A lot of people know this stuff. So I certainly agree with a lot of the politics of the film. I certainly don't agree with the rather condescending view that the movie has towards the unwashed masses. But, I mean... You know, I would agree with the Communist Manifesto if it were written on a canvas. That doesn't make it great art. Well, I don't really have, I don't have the same assessment at all of the tone or thrust of the film. I think the opening bit that you quote from is really just about framing Cheney as a character. Cheney is a boring, pencil-pushing bureaucrat who nevertheless has his hands in all these egregious crimes and uh, depredations. No, it also blames us. It says, as the world becomes more and more confusing, we're, we're too busy focusing on the things right in front of us. And what about that scene later on in the movie when, it's the lead up to the Iraq war. You get this montage of all the news footage. You get the montage of people saying, oh, we can't wait for the smoking gun in the form of a mushroom cloud. And then McKay shows us footage of Survivor. He shows us footage of, you know, the what's up Bud Light commercial as if to suggest, oh, we were just so narcoticized by this trash culture that we watch uh, that we, we, we weren't even paying attention to the Iraq war. I mean, people were watching Abbott and Costello movies during the Second World War. Right, but I don't think that's what the purpose, I don't think that's what any of that is is saying at all. I think it's just supposed to be a pastiche of all the stuff that was happening uh, in the early 2000s while, you know, the Iraq war and other things were going on. It's meant to show the kind of coexistence of, you know, the heinous brutality and violence of something like the Iraq War with, you know, yeah, the, the, you know, narcotic nature of U.S. culture, the fact that all of this was going on while the United States was committing these uh, horrific crimes abroad. And the other thing I'll say is that I, I agree that the film is not particularly subtle. But I think that its inclusion of all of these facts and also its uh, depiction in many areas of, you know, pretty gruesome and and violent scenes. I mean, stock footage from Abu Ghraib and, you know, footage uh, from, you know, the helicopter as it's, you know, machine gunning Iraqi soldiers, that kind of thing. I think these are not the kinds of things you typically see in movies, particularly uh, liberal movies about, you know, Iraq or, or kind of post 9-11 movies. This film is willing to go where uh, the vast majority of that, you know, huge body of, uh, you know, films and TV shows won't, which is that it is willing to show America's wars as something other than mistakes undertaken by, you know, benign patriots who meant to do the right thing and may have erred in how they carried it out. It shows these things as crimes undertaken by evil people. And it especially does that through the vehicle of Cheney, who it quite deliberately portrays, and, you know, I think Christian Bale plays Cheney very well, as just very kind of quiet and boring. He's someone whose ideological convictions almost appear kind of incidental. They're just epiphenomenal of his own desire for self-advancement, his own greed, and his own ability to dismiss violence and not have any kind of basic moral or ethical reaction to it. So I think I just read the film quite differently than you did. Well, I can agree with you and I can admire Adam McKay for the fury of his moral indignation and for certain of the moral arguments that he makes in the movie. I mean, you're right. Some of that Iraq war footage, I think, is valuable to put out there. And it's admirable that he in this movie frames the Iraq war as not a logistical failure, but as a moral failure. But in a way, I think his moral indignation actually gets in his way when it comes to the business 
of making art. I mean, tonally, I think this film is a mess. Like, it's it's a little bit better than Oliver Stone's W, but it suffers from a lot of the same artistic problems. It's caught halfway between being an Oscar bait drama and an SNL sketch. You know, he hates Cheney so much, rightly so, and he hates all the people around him so much that the performances by Christian Bale as Cheney and Steve Carell as Donald Rumsfeld, I think especially, to me never become more than gargoyle caricatures. They don't feel like lived-in characters. They feel like SNL imitations. Even Christian Bale, who, I mean, does a good imitation, but it never feels like an actual man to me. It, it feels like a caricature that would be in, like, a, a liberal memes of the 2000s Twitter account, you know? Well, I'm agreed about Steve Carell, not because I don't like Steve Carell, uh, or because he doesn't, uh, particularly later in the film, physically resemble Donald Rumsfeld quite closely, uh, but just because I can't really see Steve Carell in a role like this uh, without him just being Michael Scott. Yeah. Um, there's no getting around the fact that, you know, for me, it's just, you know, what if what if Michael Scott was, uh, you know, defense secretary and that, you know, that clearly doesn't work. And by the way, nothing against Tyler Perry, who I think does a perfectly admirable job as Colin Powell. But I think he and several other people in the movie suffer from a certain amount of like, OK, you're in the movie for five minutes and you're such a famous person that there's no time to adjust to you being Colin Powell. So like anytime Tyler Perry's on screen, I'm just thinking, huh, that's that's really weird. Tyler Perry dressed as Colin Powell. Well, there are a number of these cameos. I mean, there's uh, one that I liked from Naomi Watts that's uncredited where she plays you know, a kind of Fox, you know, Fox News host, a kind of right wing uh, talking head. Uh, there's one from Alfred Molina, which I liked as well, which I think is also uncredited, where he's the waiter at a restaurant where Cheney and Rumsfeld are eating and he presents them a menu that just basically has like every crime on it, you know, like Guantanamo Bay, oh, uh, torture, extrajudicial detention. Will clearly didn't like this. I thought it was very good. I do have a criticism when it comes to Colin Powell, not about Tyler Perry's performance, uh, but just in that I think the movie is partake in a kind of idealization of Colin Powell that I think is unwarranted. It kind of portrays uh-huh. Colin Powell, you know, it is very fashionable. I mean, if, if people remember back in 2002, 2003, you know, there was a narrative that, well, Colin Powell is kind of holding George Bush and Dick Cheney's leash. You know, he's the member of the administration that, you know, we sensible liberals, you know, we know that he cares about human rights and international law. And of course, the administration understood that he had this reputation. So when they decided, uh, you know, when Tony Blair came to Bush and said, ah, I can't get Parliament to approve British involvement without a second UN resolution. When Blair came and asked the Americans to change their PR strategy, the administration sent Colin Powell, who, you know, went and gave a, you know, litany of lies at the uh, UN General Assembly. You know, we see Colin Powell at the UN General Assembly and the narration said, Colin Powell later said this was the most moment of his life. And I thought, well, yeah, did John Wilkes Booth say that assassinating Lincoln was the moment of his life? Like, like, it's, it's the thing. It's the thing that would define his life. It's like, it's not just an aberration. It's the main event. Yeah, I thought the uh, the portrayal of Powell for that reason was a bit of a throwback to kind of, uh, yeah, like liberal idealization of Powell in 2003. And I didn't think it worked very well. But when it comes to Bale's portrayal of Cheney, I mean, I, I again, I uh, we have quite a strong disagreement here because I think, I mean, I agree with you that uh, it doesn't really seem like there's much of a man there, but that's, be- I mean, that's the point. There isn't much of a man here. There's a completely unremarkable guy who just happens to have climbed the ladder of the kind of state corporate complex that uh, has come to run the United States, and there's not a lot more to it. Um, I found an interview with McKay from The New Yorker where he's asked about the decision to present Cheney, this is how the interviewer put it, uh, the decision to present Cheney is less of an ideological figure than as someone interested in power for its own sake. And McKay responds, the big question is what drove this guy? There are a lot of people that have the theory he was actually fairly moderate. And then after 9-11, he changed, or maybe it was the heart attack that changed him. He heard all kinds of things floating around. What I found, and I know there are people who disagree with this, was a surprising lack of ideology. I found beliefs that would flip and flop based on what was convenient and what was strategically useful. Going back to Donald Rumsfeld sort of being against the Vietnam War to counteract Kissinger's influence in the White House, to Cheney and Rumsfeld being hawkish against Russia to counteract Kissinger's influence. You see that with the Laffer curve, supply-side economics, 
He's introduced to it and rolls his eyes in the 1970s. And then you see him later with Paul O'Neill in the White House telling George W. Bush that deficits don't matter. I know he hung out with the neocons and I know that Leo Strauss and obviously Ayn Rand is a line that runs through a lot of the Republican Party. But to me, the big turning point that I found for Cheney was when he was introduced to the unitary executive theory by young Antonin Scalia in the 70s when he directed the minority opinion on the Iran-Contra scandal with David Addington involved. At one point, he even says the president should have certain monarchical prerogatives. I don't know if I would call the unitary executive an ideology so much as a legal theory, but that pointed even more to the fact that I was watching a guy be transformed by a taste of power. Now, that's a, a reading of Dick Cheney, an interpretation of him that I think one can agree or disagree with. I happen to think it's a very uh, effective and provocative reading of Dick Cheney. And to me, that's what Bale's performance is about. And that's what McKay's portrayal of the character is about and, and what it's trying to do. And for me, I think it's, it largely succeeded in that. Well, I think there are ways to successfully make a movie around a sort of nowhere man character, a sort of empty man guy. You know, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman is just one example that comes to mind. Uh, one problem I have with this movie is that McKay's style is so all over the place and undisciplined that there's really no chance for the actors to settle into a style or a mode. Steve Carell seems cast basically for his comic abilities, Christian Bale for his dramatic abilities, but they're in this movie that's constantly ping-ponging back and forth between sort of like sketch comedy and uh, solemn, heavy Oscar bait drama. And, you know, McKay, I think, clearly thinks of this movie primarily as a pedagogy tool. He wants to enlighten us of the things that, you know, we've been too busy working long shifts at Walmart to know. And he's developed this kind of anything goes style where, you know, scenes are punctuated by text or animation or little explainers and asides or these little comic flights of fancy. Breaking the fourth wall, that happens a lot, not just in this movie, but in other McKay films as well. Yeah. And I mean, you know, hey, that scene at the restaurant. Uh, one thing I'm sure we can agree on is that comedy is subjective. I don't find the movie funny at all. I think, you know, an example of this movie's sense of humor is during the scene where Scalia is telling Cheney about the unitary executive theory, McKay fades from Cheney into a comic book character called Galactus Devourer of Planets. Or, you know, there's the scene where the Cheneys start talking to each other in Shakespearean soliloquy. I mean, if you find that funny, that's great. To me, that's like 2000s era occupied Democrats meme shit right there. Well, I feel like you're punching a straw man because I did not actually say that I found any of those things <laughs> funny as such. I just said that said that they right. were effective. All right. The, the, the so straw don't man. Pin the, don't pin the dang occupied Democrats label on me. Don't come at me with that Sloan. All right. The straw man I'm going to punch is Adam McKay then because he's the man who's, <laughs> whose name is on this. But I, I just think, you know, clearly McKay, his life was changed when he saw The Wolf of Wall Street and he saw that scene where Leonardo DiCaprio is talking to the camera about all the stuff that the firm is doing and he pauses and says, oh, but you don't care about any of that. Uh, what you need to know is, was this illegal or not? I think he took all the, the wrong lessons from that scene. He took that the audience is really stupid and needs to have stuff spoon-fed to them. And you can do anything you want with film. You can go in any direction at all, regardless, because what ultimately matters is like what you're saying and not how you're saying it. Well, again, I don't really agree with that assessment at all because I think The Big Short, I quite enjoyed it. I thought that- I like that you know, better than not, this movie, hey. It's doing something different than The Wolf of Wall Street. I think The Wolf of Wall Street is more about, you know, greed and machismo than The Big Short, which is, you know, a nerdier movie. But, you know, a film that is more interested in showing all the kind of convoluted machinations of these finance guys in back rooms and how they ultimately crash the global economy. I think that's different than The Wolf of Wall Street, but I think it's also doing something uh, quite interesting. But torture and privacy laws weren't the only laws Cheney rewrote with John Yu. They had a full menu of legal opinions stretching and challenging constitutional and international law. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, tonight we're offering the enemy combatant, whereby a person is not a prisoner of war or a criminal, which means, of course, that he has absolutely no protection under the law. We're also offering an extraordinary rendition where suspects are abducted without record on foreign soil and taken to foreign prisons in countries that still torture. For formality's sake, let's go over uh, the plot of the film or the, or the thrust of its argument. Although, you know, if you're listening, you probably you probably know what Dick Cheney's all about. Um, you know, the film presents Dick Cheney as 
sort of a Forrest Gump of American politics from Nixon to George W. Bush, at least the rightward side of American politics. Someone who, unlike Forrest Gump, though, was directly complicit in much of the decision making that has made America the right wing utopia it is today. When we join Dick Cheney, he is an alcoholic, ne'er do well working a dead-end labor job, but his Lady Macbeth-like wife gets him on the straight and narrow. And before too long, he's working in the Nixon White House. We meet a lot of characters along the way. Uh, Roger Ailes is in the Nixon White House. He's mulling over Nixon's bright idea of a conservative news network. We linger outside the office door while Kissinger and Nixon are holding the secret meeting to bomb Cambodia. Cheney and Rumsfeld were out of Nixon's inner circle during the Watergate crisis, so they were first in line for the next Republican revolution. We meet, as you alluded to earlier, a young Antonin Scalia who changes Cheney's life with the unitary executive theory. You know, if a president does something, it's legal by definition. We meet George H.W. Bush, who congratulates Cheney for helping facilitate Reagan's veto of the Fairness Doctrine, which was a law that required broadcast TV and radio news to present both sides of an issue equally. And the film credits that decision with giving us uh, the Morton Downey Jr. show, Rush Limbaugh, and much more consequentially, Fox News. I'm curious what you think of that, because I I don't have a strong feeling about this, but that that strikes me as a rather more complicated issue than McKay presents it as. I don't know enough about the legislation specifically to offer a firm opinion. I mean, I think that that's something that you could more or less establish empirically. I do think you can draw a line between certain Reagan-era changes to the way news media was conceived and regulated to what started to happen in the 1990s. Although I I think there, there's probably uh, some other stuff at work as well. Again, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect a lot of the Clinton-era deregulation probably had something to do with this as well. I know that there was at least one major bill during the Clinton era, uh, which led to a lot of corporate mergers and particularly corporate media mergers as well. So I think that's probably complicit in uh, the heinous hellscape of a news media environment uh, that exists today. Certainly, I think that there's a deep precedent for uh, something like Fox News and just kind of for this model of uh, very partisan uh, cable news networks in general. Uh, There's a precedent for that in Reaganism, a sort of deep ideological precedent, just in as much as the core idea of Reaganism is just that everything should be commodified. I mean, we were sort of talking about this earlier in relation to Elon Musk, but I mean, that really is the, you know, if there's a spiritual center to neoliberalism, you know, if there's a deep theology to it, that's what it is. It's that everything, we should just apply the logic of the market to everything. And if you take that logic far enough, it really means that people are no longer citizens, they're just consumers, they're, you know, actors, agents in a marketplace. And just as the state doesn't have any kind of social mission anymore, it just exists to kind of sit atop the market and make sure that, you know, market transactions happen and property is protected. I mean, the news media doesn't have any kind of wider public purpose or social mission either. It's just another actor in the marketplace and kind of, you know, anything goes. And there's a clear through line from that, at least, to where we are today, where you know, I guess for a lot of liberals, you know, the post-truth reality that we live in today is just because of like fake news and like the bravado of people like Donald Trump, their willingness to tell lies, etc. You know, I think it goes back a lot deeper than that. And I think the kind of commodification of everything is uh, complicit in it as well and and probably offers us a, a better and deeper explanation. It was a moment that stuck out to me because the idea of TV news presenting both sides of an issue equally, the movie presents that as this moral imperative, but there's been so much talk over the last, like, five years about, oh, the media feels obligated to present both sides of an issue, whether it's uh, Hillary's uh, frickin' emails, or whether it's uh, evolution, or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, somebody's anti-Semitism, or this or that. Like, it, it feels like the sort of argument that when it's presented the way it is in this movie, you nod along with it, but it then, five minutes later, if this movie presented the exact opposite argument, you would nod along with it as well. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Will Sloan uh, supports the Reagan-era uh, <laughs> repeal of the Fairness Doctrine. <laughs> 
what did we always say? I'm the conservative, you're the liberal. <laughs> anyway, the film continues to follow Dick Cheney into the most important part of his career, his time as George W. Bush's vice president. It very much positions Cheney as the master manipulator, the real brains of the operation, not just the true ideologue of the Bush White House, but a master of branding, the man who helped global warming turn into climate change. And then at the end of the film, the conservative revolution that he helped foster ends up swallowing him whole so that even Liz Cheney has to disown her sister on TV, essentially, (laughs) as she comes out against same-sex marriage to sate the braying Trump hordes. And then the film ends in its end credits uh, with a focus group where a group of uh, Trumpers and Hillary stands argue over what they've just seen. And it ends with a character saying, have you seen the new Fast and Furious? It looks lit, which I hated. That is ultimately what the audience is to Adam McKay. It's a bunch of fucking braying Fast and Furious fans who need such truth bombs as, did you know the 2000 election was stolen, fed to them on a silver platter? Well, I think that's unfair to Adam McKay in general, but I will agree with you when it comes to this particular scene. And the tragedy is that this kind of post-credit sequence, or I guess it's in the midst of the credits, it's preceded by something that I think is pretty effective. There's a kind of montage of various images, just war and destruction, torture, economic collapse, and those are interspersed with a stack of teacups kind of falling over. And you know, it's meant to symbolize, this is decades of what right-wing ideology Uh, has led up to all this. You see an image of Alex Jones. It says a lot with very little. It sort of says all of these things that, you know, Dick Cheney was central to or connected to in the preceding decades have led up to this. The chickens have come home to roost. Uh, And then you get this little postscript, which I agree, I don't think it works very well at all. I think it is kind of patronizing. The fact that it's lit is the last line in the movie. Not good. I think that what this was supposed to be, I mean, what this to me looks like is sort of B-roll that they had from the preceding montage that was cut or something like that. Um, And then they decided to tack it on at the end. I agree it doesn't work very well. I think what it's supposed to be depicting is sort of Trump era polarization. And it's trying to kind of indict Cheneyism for that as well. And I don't think it works as a scene, but I also think that that's pretty clunky politically and ideologically. And I, I don't think it works on any level really for that reason. So at the end of the movie, I'm just thinking, who is this movie for? You know, there's a section where we hear that one of Bush and Cheney's judicial appointees ruled that governments can monitor U.S. citizens' phone calls and texts without a warrant. And then it goes on, well, it goes on to that restaurant scene where, you know, they can rewrite laws around torture. Now, I imagine that's mostly liberals going to see this movie, and they already know these things. If a conservative Republican saw this movie and they saw that scene, I think they would say, yeah, so what? The laws should have been changed. And it's a scene that's sort of presented like it's dropping these truth bombs that have been the hidden history. And, you know, if ultimately what this movie accomplishes is making 500 media people and like blue wave Twitter accounts um, think very deeply about the work they've done rehabilitating Dick Cheney's image, then... I mean, I don't know. Well, I don't think Will and I have ever disagreed on Mike (laughs) so strongly about a movie because I just don't think that that's what this film is about at all. I don't think that's what it's doing at all. Uh, I mean, this... I mean, you say the movie's didactic and it's bombarding people with facts. You know, it's bombarding an audience with facts, you know, that the audience already knows. That may be true in a sense, but I mean, this story has never been told in this way before. Like, these are basic facts about Mm -hmm. the Bush administration and the figure who is arguably the most central to it. They're paired with scenes of, with real scenes of absolutely horrific violence and brutality carried out by the United States in Iraq and elsewhere. And despite the fact that there have been zillions of movies made as part of the you know vast cottage industry of you know post 9-11 cinema none of this has been depicted before what was the oliver stone w movie what was that about (laughs) it had no perspective it had no real critique apart from the fact that george bush once said that they misunderestimated him and you know we're (laughs) supposed to laugh at that i guess are we i don't even know if the movie can make up its mind about that this film comes along has a perspective 
brutally indicts Dick Cheney and George Bush in a way that has never been done before by an American filmmaker at a time when liberals are in the business of rehabilitating Dick Cheney as a, a defender of democracy, not just as, you know, a benign ally on the other side, as an active defender of democracy. We're all supposed to root for his his Republican daughter who would not even stand up for her own sister's right to get married in a Republican primary. And that's supposed to be like the sort she's supposed to be the sword and shield of American democracy. The film does all of that in that climate and you say that it's uh, sanctimonious and I disagree. <laughs> well, listen, we agree that it's better than Oliver Stone's W. At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, Coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. Now to tee up something I want to read from uh, one of my favorite book reviews ever written. I do just want to say uh, one more thing as a compliment to the film, which is that I think it does a very good job in portraying the relationship between Bush and Cheney. I mean, Sam Rockwell, who plays Bush, you know, doesn't really look like him. He does a passable job, but, you know, Bush is more of an instrument in the movie than he is really a, a character. And I think uh, in spite of that, or perhaps uh, partly because of it, you know, the film does a good job of portraying Cheney as just somebody who was kind of constantly pushing George Bush's buttons. Now, the review I want to read from is uh, from the London Review of Books. It's a 2010 review of George Bush's insufferably named memoir, Decision Points, by Elliot Weinberger. As I said, one of my favorite book reviews ever. And partway through, Elliot Weinberger writes this, which I think very much resonates with the portrayal of Dick Cheney in the movie. The enormous black hole in the book is the grand puppet master himself, Dick Cheney, the man who was prime minister to Bush's figurehead president. In decision points, as in the Bush years, he is nearly always hiding in an undisclosed location. When he does show up on scattered pages, he is merely another member of the Bush team. The implicit message is that Washington was too small a town for two deciders. Only twice in this fat book does one get a sense of Cheney's presence. He complains about Bush's refusal to grant a pardon to Scooter Libby, I can't believe you're going to leave a soldier on the battlefield. But the scene is taken from a news article where the line is not attributed to Cheney, but to anonymous staffer and spoken about Bush, not directly to him. And there is one glance at how adept Cheney was at pushing Bush's macho buttons. So this is from the book now. Dick Cheney was concerned about the slow diplomatic process. He warned that Saddam Hussein could be using this time to produce weapons, hide weapons, or plot an attack. At one of our weekly lunches that winter, Dick asked me directly, are you going to take care of this guy or not? That was his way of saying he thought we had given diplomacy enough time. I appreciated Dick's blunt advice. I told him I wasn't ready to move yet. Okay, Mr. President, it's your call, he said. Then he deployed one of his favorite lines. That's why they pay you the big bucks, he said with a gentle smile. So I think all of that kind of jibes with the portrayal of Cheney in the movie as somebody who was kind of involved in everything, but in public anyway, was often a, a quiet presence and more of a bureaucratic operator than the face of all these horrendous crimes he was helping perpetrate. Now, I said this is one of my favorite book reviews of all time, and this doesn't have anything to do with Dick Cheney, but I do just want to read the first few paragraphs because, folks, this is how you write a fucking book review. I hope in my life I can one day write a book review this good. In the late 1960s, George Bush Jr. was at Yale, branding the asses of pledges to the Delta Kappa Epsilon fraternity with a hot coat hanger. Michel Foucault was at the Société Française de Philosophie considering the question, what is an author? The two, needless to say, never met. Foucault may have visited Texas on one of his lecture tours, but Jr., as far as it is known, never took his S&M reverie beyond the Ivy League. Novelists will have to invent a chance encounter in a basement club in Austin. Moreover, Junior's general ignorance of all things, except for professional sports, naturally extended to the nation known as France. On his first trip to Paris in 2002, Junior, now President of the United States, stood beside Jacques Chirac at a press conference and said, He's always saying the food here is fantastic, and I'm going to give him a chance to show me tonight. Foucault found his theories embodied somewhat unconvincingly in writers such as Proust or Flaubert. He died in 1984 while Junior was still an aging frat boy and didn't live to see this far more applicable text. For the questions that he even then declared hopelessly obsolete are the very ones that should not be asked about decision points by, in quotation marks, George W. Bush or, also in quotation marks, George W. Bush. 
Who really spoke? Is it really he and not someone else? With what authenticity or originality and what part of his deepest self did he express in his discourse? Decision points holds the same relation to George W. Bush as a line of fashion accessories or a perfume does to the movie star that bears its name. He no doubt served in some advisory capacity. The words themselves have been assembled by Chris Michael, the young speechwriter and devoted acolyte who went to Yale with Bush's daughter, Barbara, a freelance editor, Sean Desmond, the staff at Crown Publishing, who reportedly paid $7 million for the book, a team of a dozen researchers and scores of trusted friends. Foucault again. What difference does it make who is speaking? The mark of the writer is nothing more than the singularity of his absence. As a postmodern text, many passages in the book are pastiches of moments from other books, including scenes that Bush himself did not witness. These are taken from the memoirs of members of the Bush administration and journalistic accounts such as Bob Woodward's Plan of Attack and Bush at War. To complete the cycle of postmodernity, there are bits of dialogue lifted from Woodward, who is notorious for inventing dialogue. Occasionally, someone on team decision points will insert a lyrical phrase. The tears on the begrimmed faces of 9-11 relief workers, quote, cutting a path through the soot like rivulets through a desert. But most of the prose sounds like this. <clears throat> I told Margaret and Deputy Chief of Staff John Bolton that I considered this a far-reaching decision. I laid out a process for making it. I would clarify my guiding principles, listen to experts on all sides of the debate, reach a tentative conclusion, and run it past knowledgeable people. After finalizing a decision, I would explain it to the American people. Finally, I would set up a process to ensure that my policy was implemented. There are nearly 500 pages of this, reminiscent of the current POMO poster boys, Tao Lin with his anesthetized declarative sentences, and Kenneth Goldsmith with his uncreative writing, such as a transcription of a year's worth of daily radio weather reports. Foucault notes again, today's writing has freed itself from the theme of expression. Even the title of the book unchains the signifier from the signified. Decision points is business speak for a list of factors, usually marked by a bullet in PowerPoint presentations that should be considered before making a decision. There are no decision points in decision points. Despite what is claimed above, Bush never stops to consider. He is the decider who acts impulsively and crisply, drawing on his, quote, moral clarity. In the scariest line in the book, he has been allowed to let slip that his motive for the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan was simply revenge, surely the least desirable emotional quality one would want in a world leader with access to nuclear weapons. About 9-11, the text says, My blood was boiling. We were going to find out who did this and kick their ass. Team Decision Points has indeed created, quote, a space into which the writing subject constantly disappears. One learns almost nothing about George W. Bush from this book. The names of hundreds of other people are mentioned, almost always in praise. It is, in its way, the world's longest prize acceptance speech, but none of them, outside of the Bush family, has any life as a character. Each new person is introduced with a single sentence, noting one or more of the following. One, Texan origins. Two, college athletic achievements. Three, military service. Four, deep religious faith. The sentence ends with three personal characteristics. Honest, ethical, and forthright. A brilliant mind, disarming modesty and a buoyant spirit. A statesman, a savvy lawyer, and a magnet for talented people. Smart, thoughtful, energetic. That's Condi. Knowledgeable, articulate, and confident. That's Rummy. A wise, principled, humane man. Clarence Thomas, and so on. Then the person does whatever Bush tells him to do. Bush is the lone hero of every page in Decision Points. Very few spoken words are assigned to him outside of the public records of speeches and press conferences, and in nearly all of them he is forceful in command and peeved at the inadequacies of his subordinates. Anyway, I'd love to read the whole review, but you can read it yourself at the London Review of Books. Again, only one part of that was about Dick Cheney, but one of my favorite reviews of a book ever written, and I figured since this was the Dick Cheney episode, we might as well read from it. Anyway, I guess this episode is one for the record books. Uh, your beloved co-hosts actually disagreed about a movie. Who'd have thought? Now watch this drive. Uh -huh.